Welcome. We are thrilled that you are here. We are also happy to have uh, people watching online, uh, well over 100 people, 100 different computers. We don't even know how many are always watching us uh, every weekend online, so we welcome you as well. I pray that this message is truly a blessing to you. I'm excited about the entire series as we take a look at Elisha and how God came and said, Elisha, you've been successful. Take a shot at being significant. We're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19 if you want to get ready. We're going to bust over a few more pages, take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2 maybe just for a moment. Uh, If you have a smart device, you can just go to uh, the Bible app, choose live event, and uh, the scripture should pop up there for you already. Let's begin with a word of prayer. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all the assembled hearts Prove acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, each week, obviously, uh, has a different emphasis. Today, we're talking about the call on Elisha's life while Elisha was doing something else. God came into his life and asked him to uh, course correct. And he does that from time to time, often in a person's life. Uh, Perhaps he's doing that also for you. Today, we're talking about rewritten you know, reading the book review. You know, if your life was a story and you read the book review. I read a lot of stories. In fact, I read a lot of books. Uh, I'm, I'm sad to see that the statistics say that most people who graduate college or graduate high school rarely read another book. What is wrong with you? You know, if you want to keep growing, keep reading. Keep uh, choosing, not reality TV. That will not get you very far. You know, read things that uh, are worth your time. You're going to invest some time, so you want to know, is it worth your time to read? And when I do that, I grab a book, and I look at the back of the book, and I say, you know, what's this book about? And then I look, who endorses this book? Are these people that I respect? And then I maybe even look at the preface or the table of contents, and I want to know, is, is this a book worth reading? And I ask you the same, is your story worth reading? You know, if your story were a book, would you finish it? Or would you put it down? And if they made a movie out of your book, would people walk out pretending to get popcorn and never come back? I don't know. Uh, we've asked people to submit some cards on these uh, postcards. They're prepaid. Uh, we still want you to do that if you haven't. Uh, there are some in your announcement folder that you can use. You can pick up extra copies, pass them around. This is a, such an easy way for you to help people think about eternal things because when they fill it out and, and go to the site, then they'll begin to think about life. It's just such a simple and subtle way for you to engage them and take that conversation to another level. Maybe it's your neighbor. You say, well, why are you doing this? Well, our church is doing this. And, you know, you're going to suck them into maybe a message that might be helpful to them uh, that would first seem like good advice. Uh, but you know it's more than that. It's God's word for their life that leads to eternal life. If I could rewrite my story, here's what I would change. I was so excited about getting that big house as soon as we could afford it. It has been a burden ever since. And life has thrown us a lot of curves. Thirteen years later, we are still struggling to pay for it. Sell the thing. (laughs) Reorient your life. Rewrite your life. You don't have to be there. Or here's one. If I could rewrite my story, here's what I would change. I would value education and the opportunity to learn more. Most of all, I would apply my ability and my talent to the best of my capability. Lastly, I would heed the word of both my earthly and heavenly father more. Wow. There's somebody who's growing, somebody who's maturing. And that's a great thing. 
Well, today we're talking about uh, the life of Elisha. Our case study is a man who is at the crossroads of history and also the crossroads of his life. And it's important that I lay down some context in this uh, opening message. So uh, looking at 1 Kings chapter 19, let me just tell you what's going on. We know about Elijah. Elijah is considered one of the major prophets of his day. He was a prophet during a time of great apostasy. You know, great disbelief, great unfaithfulness in the nation of Israel. And he was called to be the prophet during that time. King during that time was Ahab. Queen during that time was Jezebel. Now, you may not know much about the history, but you know we don't name many kids Ahab or Jezebel anymore. You know, these were, these were evil people. And he was called to be king during that time. And God said, go get the attention of the king because people are afraid of him. And you say to that king, unless you change your ways, I'm going to bring a drought on the land. And so Elijah announced that to Ahab. And Ahab already killed many prophets who were true prophets of God. You know, Elijah intimidated the king who had killed other prophets. And he came and said, thus saith the Lord. And he told him the message. And a drought came on the land for three years. And then God said, Elijah, go find the king again. He says, if I find the king, he'll kill me. And he says, no, he won't. I'll protect you. And so Elijah went and showed himself to the king. And the king saw him coming and said, behold, the troubler of Israel, the man who has cursed our land. He said, I am not the troubler of Israel. You have brought this on the land. Repent. I challenge you to a duel of sorts, a duel of prophets. And so they went up on Mount Carmel. Uh, Some of you know the story. Not everybody knows the story. That's okay. He went up on Mount Carmel and uh, he said, King Ahab, bring all of your false teachers and let them build an altar to their God, whoever it is, the gods of Baal, the gods of uh, heathen. And, and have them pray to their heathen gods, cut themselves, you know, wail, cry, and, and ask their God to receive their offering, to consume their offering, but they can't touch it, they can't light a fire. Let's see if their God can light a fire. Let's see if he can do that. And I will build my altar, and I will call on my God, and we'll see which God is true God. So it was kind of a showdown of prophets. And so Elijah went up, and, and while the prophets of Baal went first, and they were cutting themselves, and they were screaming at their God, Elijah was off to the side mocking them. What's wrong? Maybe he's sleeping. He even said, maybe he's gone to the restroom. You know, you get him, wake him up, bring him out. You know, make him do what he's supposed. He was, he was just mocking them so severely. Now just think the confidence he had to have because his turn was coming. And when it came to his turn, that was a drought. And somehow, perhaps miraculously provided by God, he found some water. Enough water that he built his altar with rock. He laid his sacrifice on the altar. And then he poured water over his altar. He even dug a trench around his altar and he poured water in it until it was full. And then he prayed to his God and his God caused fire to consume the sacrifice, consume the rocks, and lick up the water like it was fuel. It was clear whose God was true God. And you would have thought the whole nation would have rallied behind Elijah and thrown Ahab out. But they were in fear of Ahab and more in fear of his wicked queen Jezebel. And so nothing changed. Elijah literally went from this mountaintop experience to a great despair and a great depression. Right after that event, he goes out into the desert. And this is where we find him in 1 Kings chapter 19. He goes out into the desert and he cries to God saying, take my life. 
I can't deal with it anymore. Nothing is changing. No one believes in you, God. Don't you care? I am the only one left. But if you read in verse 18, he says, Get out of your funk, Elijah. Stop the self-pity. There are 7,000 less courageous people, but 7,000 people who have still not bent their knee to Baal. There are 7,000 secret, faithful, God-fearing people in the nation. Keep doing what you're doing. Their life depends on it. And he told him to go out and stand because I'm, I'm going to pass before you and I'm going I'm to affirm you, I'm going to encourage you in your work. And you know, jumping back in, in verse 11, he said, Go out and stand on the mountain. The Lord is about to pass. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And there was a strong wind, an F4, I think. You know, tossing rocks around. I mean, you know, he was in the middle of a tornado. You know, and think of the power that we've seen in the Midwest with tornadoes. He was in the middle of a tornado, and God was not in the tornado. And then there was an earthquake, and if you've been in the mountains and the earthquakes, I mean, whole sides of hills fall away. And he was in the middle of that, and you can imagine his fear for his own life, and God was not in the earthquake. And then there was a consuming fire, like the fires we see in California or in the Rockies during the summer, sweeping over the hills, creating their own weather. And God was not in the fire. And that says something to us. That's how we expect God to come. We expect him to come in a miracle. We expect him to do something dramatic. God didn't come in a dramatic way. And it says, then there was a sound of a gentle whisper. And Elijah covered his face because he knew God was about to speak to him. And he said, why are you here, Elijah? He said, I told you why I'm here. My ministry is making no difference. He said that your ministry is making a difference. And he said, I can see that you are wore out from it. Uh, I want to choose others who will lead after you. And he named who they were. And the man he called to lead the prophetic role was a man named Elisha, beginning at verse 19. So Elijah departed from there, and he did as God said. And he went and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And he was plowing with 12 pair of oxen before him, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. And Elijah passed by, and he took his mantle, and he threw it on the back of Elisha. And Elisha left his oxen, and he followed after Elijah, and he said, I get it, I understand, but let me go first talk to my mom and dad. You know, it's a big decision, you know, to, to leave this and, and to do what you want me to do. He said, you don't have to do this. Stay if you want. What have I done to you? And then verse 21. So Elisha returned from following him. He took the pair of oxen. He took his plow. He took his yoke. He built a fire. He slaughtered the animals. He barbecued the meat. Held a village, you know, festival. Fed everybody. And then he left it all. And he followed Elijah. Thus the call of God upon his life. Now he began to be the understudy for the great prophet, and he followed him everywhere, and everywhere Elijah was known, and Elisha was following along, trying to understand what he was to do if he was to assume the authority, and all the time quaking in his boots that God expected him to do anything. And maybe you've been like that. Maybe you've wondered, you know, how can I be anything significant? My life is not significant. I'm not important. I'm average. In fact, there's no such thing as an average person. God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary people. 
and Elisha was learning this. And everywhere he went, people who knew Elijah kept saying to Elisha, you know, Elijah's about to leave you. You know, they were all, everywhere they went, he, he had this message. And, and uh, you know that your boss is about to be called to heaven. And, and Elisha's response to that was, you know, quit talking about it. I don't want to hear it anymore. Until finally, Elijah himself in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9, after they crossed over the river, turned to Elisha and said, Ask whatever you want me to do for you because I'm about to leave. And Elisha said, Please, if you're asking me to do this, give me a double portion of whatever you got. Give me a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah said, You've asked something that's beyond my pay grade. You know, I can't do that. But I'll tell you this, God can. And here's how you know. If you see me when God takes me away from you, then you will have the answer to your prayer. But if you do not see me when God takes me away from you, you will not have the answer to your prayer. So I ask you who uh, have read this story before, did Elisha see him? Yes, he did. He's fiery horse in this fiery chariot. He swept down, and this was one of the only two people in the Bible that we know were taken to heaven alive and did not face death. And God swept him up into heaven and, and Elisha stood there saying, you know, the last big aha moment said, my Lord, my Lord and my God. And the mantle of Elijah fell down and he picked it up and he became the prophet that day. God called him out of success into significance. I know this, I know that everybody has a story. You know, uh, 25 years ago, uh, I became pastor of this church, and I've conducted a, a lot of funerals in, in that time. And uh, when I was at the seminary, they said, you know, uh, you should not be doing eulogies at funerals. You know, focus only on Jesus. You know, preach the gospel. Uh, you know, who's in the casket makes no difference. And, and so I did that for a couple of months, and I thought, oh, this is crazy. I mean, this person had a special life. This is called a memorial service, a memory service. You know, we should remember, uh, certainly the Lord, that's the greatest blessing of this person's life. And we want to focus on Jesus Christ because he's the only hope of salvation. But God did special things for this person, and we need to call that out. And so I began to sit down with families. And, and if you've been there, you know that we do this. We'll spend a couple of hours with you, and I just take notes, just, you know, fill up pages and pages of notes and then I formed that into a story about how God uniquely blessed this person. We still bring the Lord into it and God into it. But then when I get to my sermon, I can just preach about Jesus. But I think we ought to recall the blessing and the favor of God in this life. And uh, this past week, I had a service like that. And uh, uh, the lady uh, whose husband died is in the room. I saw her uh, a minute ago uh, out of the corner of my eye. And I'm not going to call her out. But I don't think she would mind me telling this story. Uh, she was uh, saying goodbye to her husband of 20 years, the love of her life. It was her second marriage. Her first husband had died by cancer. And uh, she has a German accent. And, and uh, so I was just curious about her. I'm curious about people. And, and she says, uh, uh, we've talked before. And I said, we, we have, when? And she said, well, you buried my first husband. And I said, really? And I said, I buried a lot of people. And, uh, and I said, tell me about it. And so she told me. And then I remembered uh, 23 years ago. You know, he, he had died of cancer, and she told me about that, and she said, I just thought my life was over. 
And uh, you really helped me through that time. And man, my life wasn't over. God had something else in store, a new chapter of my life. And I've been so blessed by that. You know, everybody has a story. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about you. I said, uh, you, you have this heavy German accent still. And your English is impeccable, but you still have this accent. You know, tell me about you. How were you born? And how did that work? And and uh, so she did, and I was fascinated, as I am by all people's stories. In fact, if I wasn't a pastor, I think I'd make a business just writing people's stories down for them, because I think you should leave that story to your kids and to your grandkids. And she said, well, I was born in 1939 in Stuttgart, Germany. So 1939, that was the year Hitler invaded Poland. She goes, oh, yeah. She was a newborn when Hitler invaded Poland and the war broke out in Europe. I said, man, what was that like? She goes, well, I was a baby, of course. I don't remember a lot of that. But she said, I know that uh, Hitler required all the children to be sent out of the cities because the cities were about to be bombed. And so I and my brother, we were sent uh, to live with my grandparents and my aunts who lived in a small village quite removed from the villages, no danger of bombing there. And, and so the kids went, but the parents stayed. And she said, and, and eventually uh, 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 one of her grandparents died and she was left to be raised with her aunts. And Stuttgart was completely destroyed by bombs and uh, assumed that her parents were lost and her parents came walking. It was the only means of transportation to walk to that village and she was reunited with them. But after the war, there was no hope for anybody in Germany. I mean, it was, uh, there was no opportunity. I said, so how did you get to be in America? She goes, well, that's an interesting story. She said, I decided to be an au pair. And so I went to England to be an au pair. I spoke no English. I said, now, let me understand. Hitler just bombed Britain back to the Stone Ages, and you come speaking no English and only German, and you're going to be an au pair to British people? How did that work out? She goes, it was worse than that. I was assigned to a Jewish family. <laughs> she said, I thought they were going to beat me to death. She said, but they were the kindest people. And here I was, a Christian, and she's been overtly a Christian all of her life. And uh, Christ has got her through. And she said, not only that, they helped me get to America, and I was assigned to another Jewish family. You know, I know Jewish people who still have it out for Germans today, you know, and they were also very kind to me. And eventually I was able to get an education. She has an MBA from one of our universities in town and served as 30 years as one of the chief administrators at St. Joseph's Hospital in Kirkwood. Talk about a story. Never giving up, always trusting God. And at the end of that first marriage, 27 years of marriage, you know, to her beloved, she thought her life was over. She says, but it wasn't. Three years later, uh, the Lord brought Charles into my life. And I said, well, how did you guys meet? I'm always asking that question. I'm curious. And most of you uh, fundamentalist Christians tend to meet at dances when you were told never to dance. I found that out, you know. And, and, uh, and interesting stories, you know, the secrets that you have. And uh, she said, we met through the internet of our day. And I said, well, what was the internet of your day? She goes, the personal ads. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? That never works out. Creepers are on the personal ads, you know. She goes, yeah, but God had something in mind, and it was awesome. It was wonderful, and I was a blessing to him, and he was a blessing to me, and we had 20 wonderful years together. I know people who have quit living for much less reason than that. I mean, just think, every step along the way, reason to say, you know, there is no chance for me. Life is over. She never believed that. She engaged faith, and right now she believes that God still has something in mind for her. Do you think he does? I think he does. Elisha. Some of his story is very personal. It doesn't apply to you. There's just a few points I want to make about who he was and 
And then we'll get to the part that applies to you. First of all, he was in the prime of life. Now, not all of us are in the prime of life. Some of us are uh, past prime. You know, some of us still have most of our life, based on averages, we don't know, but most of us, some of us still have most of our life ahead of us. You know, I would say that it's easier, you know, past the prime to make some changes in your life. You know, you've probably done enough to, to provide for yourself up till now, you can make some changes. And, and those of you who still have your life ahead, easy for you to make some changes, maybe, hopefully, because, uh, you know, it's an unwritten story yet. But those of us who are in the middle of our story, man, don't ask me to change. I've worked hard to get here. You know, this is, this is not a time to be changing things. Don't upset things now. He was in the prime of his life. I know that because he was out there plowing. He wasn't his daddy, you know, sending the people to plow. He was plowing himself. He was also a rich guy. Did you catch that? He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Now, I've been in the Holy Land and even to this day, most of the people who farm in the Holy Land farm a small plot enough to provide for their family and maybe a little bit to sell. And they do that by hand. I, I know about hand cultivators. You know, I grew up uh, with a father who believed in a garden, a subsistence garden. You know, the hand cultivator. And a lot of people still do that. And, and then some people, a step further than that, will take the animal that they ride to the village and they will train that animal also to, to draw the plow. They ride it and they draw the plow with it. This guy had the John Deere four-wheel drive tractors of his day. And he didn't just have one of them. He had six of them. This guy had 12 pair of oxen. I mean, he was, uh, he was plowing considerable ground with considerable firepower. He was wealthy. Man, don't ask me to leave my life when it's successful. But God said success isn't enough. Success at the end of the day will leave you unsatisfied. I want you to be significant. And he called him out of that. Now, he also called him to do something incredible. He said, I want you to be understudy for the greatest prophet of your day. Everybody knew who Elijah was. He was shocked when Elijah came into his field and threw his mantle on him. I don't know how you would make a comparison. It would would be like uh, the Billy Graham Association coming to me and saying, Steve, Billy's about to go to be with the Lord and he's chosen you to be his understudy. Franklin isn't working out so well, you know. <laughs> I would say, Billy has lost it. You know, go find somebody else who can conduct these worldwide evangelism campaigns. It was like that, you know, to be called to something that he hadn't even thought about. wasn't even in his mind. And then this applies to him and maybe not to you. He was willing to make the sacrifice and do it. Not everybody is. In fact, he was told you don't have to. But he did. He got his plow. He got his yoke. He had a barbecue. He threw a party for the village. And he left it all and followed Elijah. Now, some aspects of this story do apply to you. It's always a good time to assess your life. Now is always the right time to assess your life. And if your life is headed in the wrong direction, one more step in the wrong direction won't get you to where you need to be. You know, these people that have regrets, it's it's okay to look back and say, you know, things weren't great and I could have done some things different and my life would be different today. But you can't go back, but you can go forward and you can deal with those things in a godly fashion and you can move forward in a prosperous way. We're going to be talking about that in the weeks to come. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. What will you do with it? 
Right now we're conducting mid-year reviews and staff and it's always an interesting time. They have to do personal evaluations and then their leader also has to do evaluations and they sit down and have these conversations. I don't escape that either. You know, I've got one coming up and I meet with the chairman of the board of elders, chairman of the board of directors and, and I'm required to do the same and they are also. It's good to take an assessment so that you can make a course correction if you need to or even be affirmed in doing the right things if that is the case. Secondly, he was called to significance. You are all called to significance. There's no one here who's not called to significance. I don't care if you have a job or don't have a job. It has nothing to do with significance. I don't care if you're old or if you're young. I don't care if you're married or single. I don't care whether you have a past or don't have a past. God can use who you are, and he has called you to be significant. He's not called you to be average. He's called you to be above average, to be extraordinary, because that's how his strength is seen in your life. This is so true. My, my grandma Sunderman um, uh, didn't have a high school education, didn't even have an eighth grade education. Back in the day, you know, uh, girls were taught to cook and clean and provide for their husbands who were farmers mostly. And, and that's what she did. She did it wonderfully. She was an awesome lady. A tremendous influence in my life and in the life of her family, but in the life of other people too. You know, her memorial service was packed out. It's always amazing the reach and the influence that people have. And, uh, and, and yet she became blind even before her husband died of pancreatic cancer. And, uh, and it was interesting to watch these two work together. You know, she was blind, but she, she had all the knowledge of the kitchen, and he was a farmer, and he had no knowledge of the kitchen. And it was interesting to see them work that out and still do incredible things. And, and, and then because of her diabetes, she lived with my folks for a while, but then she had to have her legs amputated. And so here she is, a blind lady, a uh, heavy lady because of diabetes. And uh, they had to lift her in a, in a crane, more or less, a personal lift, set her in a wheelchair. She would go to Bible studies, and she was the life of that Christian care center that she eventually uh, went to live in. And when we'd go visit her, uh, there was always a buzz coming out of her room. You know, uh, other attendants who were supposed to be caring for other patients gravitated to her room because she was making a difference even then. She never quit being significant. Everybody can be significant. You're all called to be significant. Quit thinking of yourself any other way. Psalm 37 says there's a difference between a godly person and a worldly person. When a worldly person dies, their worldly life passes away with them. But a godly person has a posterity. You know, they have an influence on generations to come. God calls you to significance. Don't dismiss God's call. Third, God invites you. He does not command you to follow him you don't have to elijah said to elisha you can stay here if you want you know there's no command here god is just giving you an opportunity and i say that to you today too when god calls you to be faithful when god calls you to follow him he isn't commanding it you can choose not to he's given you free will free will still applies you can say no thank you god but you will be the lesser for it i'm not saying it's going to be easy but it's what God has for you, not what God wants from you that matters. And you see this throughout the Bible. You know, Moses in his farewell sermon, which is the entire book of Deuteronomy, says, I set before you life and death. Choose life. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Choose faithfulness. Follow God. It will change your life. It will be the hardest life that you will ever love. And you will be blessed. And people will be blessed through you. And then when Joshua uh, gets to the end of his life, he called all of Israel together and he says, uh, 
you know, decide what you're going to do. If you're going to follow the values of this world, follow the values of this world. But as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. I've made this decision. My house has made this decision. This is how we're going to live. You decide. Quit pretending. Quit sitting on the fence. Get off on this side or the other. Make a decision. God is begging you for your sake. David called Solomon to his deathbed and said, Solomon, you can do what you want, but I say be strong and courageous and do not turn from the right or to the left and God will grant you success, godly success, success that will matter in your life. I have seen it for myself. And when Esther became queen of all of Persia, there was a plot in Persia to kill the entire Jewish nation And her uncle heard about it and said, Esther, you have to go to your husband, the king, and you have to stop this plot against the nation of Israel. And she said, but you don't understand, Mordecai. There's a law in Persia that if I make a request before the king, and he has not asked me, but I ask him, if he accepts me, I live. If he says no, they put me to death. No one can presume they have any right to see the king. You're asking me to risk my life. And he said, I'm asking you to risk your life. How do you know if maybe you haven't been chosen for such a time as this? And if you don't do it, God will raise somebody else up to do it. Did you hear that? You know, if if you don't do this, it'll still be done. You just won't get the benefit of having the blessing of having done it for God. You know, it matters when you extend yourself and you follow. That's why God asks you to. I'm reminded of a great quote by Teddy Roosevelt, who said, It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man has stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the one who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, yes, who comes short again and again, yes, because there's no effort without error or without shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deed who knows great enthusiasms, great devotion, who spends himself on a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, or who at the worst, if he falls, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. God makes no demands of you. But he's giving you a great opportunity, and you should not pass on it. Point four out of this text is that uh, the key to significance is sacrifice. He burned his plow. He burned his yoke. He sacrificed his animals. He said, I'm not coming back. It's like Cortez when he brought the conquistadors to Mexico. They pulled their ships up on the beaches of Mexico, and he burned the ships. We're not going back, guys. And that's what... Elisha was saying, I'm not going back. You might wonder why this wheelchair is sitting here. This wheelchair waits for all of us. You know, if you're lucky enough to live that long, you know, someday I'm going to be frail. You know, someday I'm going to fortunate, fortunate enough, hopefully, to have a son or, or maybe a grandchild who will push me around in a chair. And, and I've thought about that, you know, when I reach that point. And I've told my sons and and I'm going to tell my grandkids, and my wife knows, that 
I want you always pushing my chair into a church that's making a difference in things that matter. If you ever push me into a church that is designed for my needs at that age, I will beat you with my cane. <laughs> because it is not about us. Sacrifice is the key to success. You know, at this time, you know, clearly there's a stir in the congregation. You know, people want us to be a little more conventional, just a little bit more conventional. Let me tell you what conventional looks like. You know, we have freely chosen to associate with the Lutheran Church of Missouri. So we're an independent congregation. They don't control us. They don't choose our pastors for us. You know, we're independent, but we've chosen to abide with them because, you know, we believe Reformation doctrine is good doctrine. We want to hold to that. And there's nothing that they teach doctrinally that I disagree with. There's a lot of, that they do traditionally that I don't agree with, but, you know, there's nothing perfect in the world. And, and so they do some good things, and they believe some great things, and so that's where we are. But if you want us to be more like them, here's how it breaks out. Out of 6,000 congregations that are in this association, last year, 53% of them converted no adults, brought no people who were unchurched to faith in Jesus Christ, over half of those churches brought no adults to Christ. 11% more brought 1%, or brought one person, not 1%. 11% more brought one person to know Jesus Christ who was an adult. Probably married a Christian. I don't know. So now we're up to 64%. And then 15% on top of that brought two or three adults to faith in Jesus Christ. So now we're up to 79% of the churches that we associate with brought fewer than four people to Jesus Christ last year. The church that aggravates you, and we don't mean to aggravate you. I, you know, I take no pleasure in aggravating you. But the church that aggravates you was number four in the list of 6,000 congregations that brought people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Push my chair into a church like that. 97 people came to Jesus Christ in this place. Our teams just got back from Cambodia, encouraging Pastor Fung, who's our missionary over there. While they were there, Dion says, I wasn't prepared for it because so many adults came out for teaching while we were there, and I had a translator. Thank God I had a translator because I wasn't prepared, but he translated, so I had time to think. And uh, we had more adults than ever, and we baptized 10 adults while we were there. Faithfulness to God is rarely, if ever, popular. I've, I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. A while back, I was invited to a synodical meeting. You know, our national headquarters is in town, and they don't have to pay a lot for me to come. I can sleep in my own bed. I don't have a hotel room. I don't have to fly in an airplane. And, and we represent a certain size church, and so I get invited sometimes. And uh, I got invited to these meetings. And, and while we were waiting at a meeting for somebody to bring back a paper that they got sent to... to um, to retrieve that was germane to the discussion one of my older friends a, a pastor of a more traditional church but a guy that you know we were friends but he I confused him I upset him you know our church was not the kind of church he thought we ought to be and and uh, uh, while we were waiting for that guy in front of the whole group while this guy went on an errand uh, he said Steve if you don't mind he says I'm, I'm glad you're here he said uh, you know you've always confused me a little bit. Uh, your ministry confuses me. You're not very traditional. Uh, you don't honor um, the things that, you know, typically are done in the Lutheran church. And uh, he said, have you ever had a twinge, even a twinge 
of, of guilt for compromising so much for the sake of popularity. And uh, I said, man, I'm so glad you asked that question, Gene. Uh, I, I said, uh, because I want to just follow that up with a question. Uh, you said for popularity, who am I popular with? Because you don't care much for what I do. You know, uh, the national headquarters doesn't care much for what we do. I am never going to receive an honorary doctorate from my seminary because they are not happy with what we do. And he said, my circuit pastors, I said, my circuit pastors don't care much for what I do. And my congregation is upset with me most of the time. So, you know, I ask you, who am I popular with? We do, do this for popularity. You know, what we do, we do for lost people because lost people matter. And that's the mission that God has called us to. It's not a matter of being popular. The Bible says, in fact, it's poignant because it's the last words of Paul to the young understudy Timothy. Just like Elijah called Elisha, Paul called Timothy. And he said, Timothy, a time will come when churches will not endure sound teaching. Instead, they will want their ears to be tickled. They will gather for themselves teachers who will do what they want them to do. And they will turn aside from that which is true And they will turn aside to that which is not true. You be sober. You know, be focused. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Make lost people your work. That is the fulfillment of your ministry. That's what Paul said to Timothy. That's the kind of church we're going to be. You know, until I'm not your pastor. And then you you can choose somebody who might tickle your ears. I hope you don't. You know, one of our important prayers that we pray here often, it's a prayer that I also had in this memorial service this past week, is a prayer that Christians love, but it's a prayer that Christians don't listen to much. I I think they love it because it's old, but they don't hear the words very well. Because it's not a prayer that's about me. It's a prayer that's about the work of Christ. It's called the prayer of St. Francis. It goes like this. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love, not be a hater. Where there's injury, don't let me be the one causing injury. Let me be the one providing pardon. Where there is doubt, let me not be the doubter. Let me be the one who is instilling faith. Where there is despair, don't let me be despairing. Let me infuse hope. Where there's darkness, let me be the light bringer. Where there's sadness, let me be the joy bringer. O divine master, listen to these words. Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to be the consoler. Not to be understood, but rather be the one who understands. Not to be the one who's loved, but to be the one who's giving love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. That's the Christian faith. That's what Elisha was called to do. Burn your ox, follow me. I'll give you the most difficult job that will ever fulfill your life. And and you will come to love. Now God won't leave you alone in this. In fact, as the story unfolds, we're going to find out that Elisha did receive a double portion of God's Spirit. More miracles are associated with Elisha than Elijah. And uh, he was blessed. And God does provide for his people. Hudson Taylor uh, once said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's support. And I I believe that's true. Uh, This past week, we are fortunate to live in the same town with my son and his wife and their beautiful little granddaughter, Cammie. And uh, Carol was uh, taking care of Cammie. And, and um, uh, she said, I had an interesting conversation with Cammie today. She said she was focused on death, as kids sometimes do, even at four. And, and she said, Grandma, I don't want you to die. And uh, she said, well, I'm not going to die. She goes, when you get old, you're going to die. 
And uh, she says, I'll miss you. And, and she says, well, someday you'll be in heaven with me. She goes, but if I'm in heaven with you, I'll miss my mommy and daddy. You know, kids, kids go there. You know, they think about things like that. And, and she said, but first you're going to have to hang on a cross, Grandma. <laughs> you know, that, that's how she was thinking. That's how, she, you know, Christians have to die on a cross. And, uh, and she said, no, Jesus did that for me. And it was a great opportunity to talk to a little child about the difference of Jesus in our life. Jesus provided for me. He provided my salvation. If he did not spare his own son but gave him up for your salvation, will he not along with him also freely give you all things? Won't he, if he asks you to do a hard thing, won't he help you do a hard thing? Won't he provide what you need to do a hard thing? I think he will. I think he's trustworthy. He's proven that beyond a doubt. Let me pray for you. Lord, bless this church. It's, it's hard, you know, to leave the 12 pair of oxen. It's hard to leave the, the successful pursuit and choose the significant pursuit. It's human nature. You understand that. Help us to understand it. Help us to be gracious towards each other and not be judgmental and not be hurtful. Help us to understand that these are difficult things to do. But Lord, I want to rewrite my story. I want to keep each day choosing significance over success and your will over my will and to be the kind of person that you would have me be so that someday, yeah, somebody's pushing me in a chair into a place that's still making a difference. Uh, They focus on me when I have a need for them to focus on me, but otherwise they are focused on lost people. Let it always be this way in my life and in my church. I pray in Christ. Amen.